He was crucified that we might be justified. He was punished that we might be pardoned. I thought that clip made the connection well between what Jesus was doing on Good Friday and the effect intended for us here today. He was taking our place there as our effective substitute. And he was setting a pattern for us to follow as our Lordship-worthy example. Today we step back a bit in Peter's first letter to a passage that ties in very well with Good Friday. Peter seems to be riffing off one of the most messianic passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, either outright quoting it or alluding strongly to it. Start, for instance, with our basic human problem, sin. Had all humans been living sinless lives, what Jesus endured on the cross and died there to do would not have been necessary. But, in case you haven't noticed lately, the world's in a mess. And we are in a mess. You just have to interact with other people and sooner or later you'll realize that you're not perfect. Others may even hint at that. In Isaiah's words, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the transfer of guilt. Why Jesus, the sinless one, was suffering. It's our iniquity for which he's being punished. I'll look at uh, 1 Peter 2.25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We do have sheep at our place, calico sheep, a ram and a yo and a little lamb. I guess that makes me a shepherd of sorts. However, it's not generally the sheep I have problem with so much as our three Nubian goats. There's a mother-daughter combination, and where the mother-goat Rose goes, there the daughter Summer follows. So when I let them out to the paddock each morning or bring them in at night, there's a checklist I have to go through. Am I standing between the door and the opposite wall? If not, Rose the mother will turn and instead of going outside, head for the metal garbage cans where the feed bags are stored. At night, I have to ask myself, is the gate closed to the horse's stall? Otherwise, when Rose comes in, instead of going to the sheep and goat pen, she heads into the horse's stall, stands up on her hind feet, and sticks her head in the bin where the horse's feet awaits her. And as I said, where the mother goes, the daughter follows, and then you have several animals running around where they're not supposed to be in general commotion, bins being knocked over. You get the picture. Isaiah and Peter are saying we're just like that nosy, inquisitive goat. Is there something tasty over there? What might be under that lid? We care more to feed our appetite than to obey the master shepherd's wishes. Our sinless suffering substitute. That day at Golgotha, Jesus was accomplishing what no other person in the history of humanity could ever have done. He was taking the place of sinners, accepting the load of their iniquity because only he was sinless. Peter quotes Isaiah 53.9 in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. Sorry, I missed this one on the slides. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Three times, no I didn't. Uh, Three times the governor Pilate acknowledged he found no fault in Jesus. 
This is uh, from John's Gospel. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. So, why did an innocent man end up crucified? Because their shouts prevailed. Consider their motives. The chief priests and other leaders of the Jews were jealous of Jesus' popularity. The crowds that followed him everywhere. Pilate was selfishly concerned with saving his own hide when the crowd started saying he was no friend of Caesar if he let Jesus off. The trial was a sham, a kangaroo court, a gross miscarriage of justice just to get rid of this irritating religious radical from the backwaters of Galilee. Are we really all that different? Do we get jealous of others' popularity when they get a ton of likes for a post? When they get promoted and we get passed over? Do we become concerned for our own welfare when others make accusations or we are misunderstood and maligned, others seeing just a part of the picture? Peter points to Jesus as our sinless suffering substitute. Verse 21, To this you are called because Christ suffered for you. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This echoes Isaiah 53, 12. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus places himself under the load of sin you can no longer manage to carry. It's crushing you'd have not the least glimmer of hope on the day of judgment. He takes it to the cross and deals with it there, so you instead can receive the gift of righteousness. God's all clear. Nobody else in history could have done that because we all have our own sin streak apart from Jesus. His redemption became effective as our sinless suffering substitute. William McComb wrote, Chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me, died that I might live on high, lives that I may never die. Our example, entrusting himself to the judge. You may recall Peter's writing about the time of Nero, the emperor, when Christians were being persecuted on account of this new oddball religion, and their allegiance to this Nazarene they hailed as Lord, in shocking contrast to Caesar. So part of Peter's purpose in writing is to encourage them in their time of suffering. So he emphasizes not just Jesus' efficaciousness as their unique substitute, how effective he is, but also his being an example for them to follow. He's leading the way, showing or demonstrating how to deal with hardship as a pattern they can imitate. Let's look at Verse 21 more, cloak completely. To this you were called. Uh, to this. To what? Well, peek back at verse 20. Enduring when suffering for doing good. 
They are called to endure, Peter says, verse 21b, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The word example is taken from that of a writing copy, like a a set of alphabet letters at the top of a page, which a child beginning to print would copy line by line, repeating over and over until they've learned how to print their letters. As we're calling this morning, some of you may recall those blackboards in the schools and what did they have up top, but they had the pattern, the example of the letters. Jesus' self-giving at the cross has its effect. His blood washes away our sins. His spirit comes into our lives when we trust him and gives us power to live for him. Jesus' teaching gives us instruction in how to live day to day. Gandhi was a revolutionary in helping bring India to independence from Great Britain. But Gandhi's nonviolent protests were not grounded in any Hindu teaching. Uh, There's a lot of violence in Hinduism. But Gandhi's teachings, his nonviolent teachings, were grounded instead in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus instructs us very practically. But Jesus doesn't just have effect in his death and give us instruction in his teaching. He himself walks the walk. He is our example, demonstrating for us the attitude and actions that ought to characterize a Christian's life. Words aren't cheap for Jesus. He practices what he preaches. He lives it out so we can be his followers, apprentices. After washing his disciples' feet, On Maundy Thursday, uh, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And Paul could urge the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow my example as I follow the, what? Example of Christ. Emmy Werner, a University of California psychologist, says, Like most things, parents teach persistence by example. One day, for example, Sam's father told him to stick with his math problem until he found the solution. As Sam worked, he could hear his father fiddling with an antique radio he was restoring. He had been at it for a week, taking the radio apart, assembling it, taking it apart again. Sam learned from that lesson, and he stuck with his math problem and other challenges he faced right on into adulthood. Likewise, we learn to endure when suffering hardship from Jesus' example. Section, our hard-won freedom to serve God and commend Christ in public. Jesus' death on the cross is not just some random fluke event a couple of thousand years ago that has nothing to do with us today. We've seen how he's the unique sinless Savior we need to effectually deal with our iniquity so we can be forgiven and be counted worthy to inherit eternal life. We've seen how he is our example, faithfully putting into practice what he taught. But what about when the rubber meets the road? Will we actually be found to be imitators of Christ when the hard knocks start coming? The deadline for this year's income tax is approaching. Maybe you've already been to see your accountant or finished the annual reckoning with your tax prep software for the year. Great. But were you tempted to not report any of that income the government didn't already know about? Are you exaggerating your expense claims, erring on the side of having to pay less tax? 
are you claiming deductions that really shouldn't apply to you when you read the fine print? It can be tricky. Earlier in this passage, Peter emphasizes the importance of submitting to the authorities over us. First uh, Peter 2.13, this is the one I didn't have a slide for. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. This closely parallels the Apostle Paul's guidance in Romans 13.5. Paul said, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In a way, this echoes Jesus' view, as in Mark 12:17, He said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Well, some might protest because Jesus is ultimately Lord. We don't have to cooperate with governing authorities, which tend to be corrupt and infected by people who like bribes and kickbacks and, in a democracy, craft policy with an eye to what will appeal to their supporters so they get reelected. But the apostles are very clear that we are to submit for the Lord's sake to human authorities for conscience's sake, as well as because you might get punished for breaking the law. How can this be? Aren't we free in Christ? Doesn't his kingdom trump all others? Aren't we supposed to obey God rather than men? See Acts 5.29. Not so fast. The Bible teaches we are to obey governing authorities unless they require us to do something contrary to God's teaching. In fact, we're to do such a good job of supporting the government that it catches the notice of those around us and commends Christ by our honorable behavior. 1 Peter 2, 15 to 17. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. What's Peter saying? Live as free people. Yes, but free to do good. Not using your so-called freedom as an excuse to carry out evil or selfish plans. Respect and honor are huge when out in the general public. In the church, the circle of believers who consider themselves sisters and brothers in Christ, agape love ought to predominate. God demonstrates his own love for us at the cross of Jesus, Romans 5.8, which empowers us in turn to prove our love for other Christians. In a few minutes, when we hold the bread and cup in our hand, let's reflect on it and examine ourselves not only in terms of our personal relationship toward God, but as a sort of check on how much we actually care and have invested ourselves, spent ourselves in loving ways toward others in our church fellowship. Are we pouring out our lives as he poured out his for us? Did he die for you? Clarence McCartney tells the story of Steinberg and a gypsy girl. 
Struck with her beauty, Steinberg took her to his studio and frequently had her sit for him. At that time, he was working on his masterpiece, Christ on the Cross. The girl used to watch him work on this painting. One day she said to him, he must have been a very wicked man to be nailed to a cross like that. No, said the painter. On the contrary, he was a very good man, the best man that ever lived. He died for others. The little girl looked up at him and asked, did he die for you? Steinberg was not a Christian, but the gypsy girl's question touched his heart and awakened his conscience, and he became a believer in him whose dying passion he had so well portrayed. Years afterward, a young count chanced to go into the gallery at Dresden where Steinberg's painting of Christ on the Cross was on exhibition. The painting spoke so powerfully to him that it changed the whole tenor of his life. And that was Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, founder of the Moravian Brethren. We're preparing now to move into our Good Friday Communion. As we gather at the table, can we bring what back there then happened forward to here today? Does it resonate deep in your soul that he died for you? Does that make any difference in how you live out in public? By doing good, Peter says, we want to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Are we known in the community for doing good? or sticking to our own little holy huddle? Can your conscience bear witness that you have not used your freedom for, as a cover-up for evil in your business dealings, your social media interactions, what you've spent your time watching for entertainment? If you have anything to confess, don't be bashful about bringing it before the Lord. You won't be telling him anything he doesn't already know. Allow the efficaciousness of Jesus' sacrifice to wash you clean. He took the burden of our sins on himself so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Had your spiritual sickness, your straying like sheep waywardness cured. 